This is the Nomad Filmmakers Podcast. No. Don't worry. I don't have any cheesy intro. It's just me and my boring, droning voice, unfortunately. So, this is the first Nomad Filmmakers Podcast. I've been toying with the idea for a long time. But a few weeks ago, I got to sit down with fellow filmmaker Corey Embry. Now, Corey is an American director, cinematographer and an editor, and he travels around the world to work on projects that tell fascinating stories and make a positive impact on human rights issues. It was great to talk to him, and I hope you enjoyed this chat. Please bear in mind this is the first ever podcast that I've ever done. So, we've got a hell of a lot of room for improvement, but there's lots of gold nuggets of of knowledge in here, so enjoy. We've been talking for a while. You know, I was thinking, I like, I don't even remember, like, I mean, I know that we connected mutually because we, like, both filmed in Hoi Pukang. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking, like, how do we actually meet? And I can't even remember. Like, <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know, man. It was around that time when you were filming. I think it might have been through Ansley or someone like that. Yeah, like maybe. Yeah, maybe you talked, you somehow got a chance to talk to her first or something and we got introduced that way. I don't know. I don't really remember, but you know, yeah, I've been wanting to meet you for a while. And <laughs> I guess, yeah, it's just good. filmmaking brought us together. I guess we yeah. have similar interests when it comes to topics and filming. Um, I watched Like We Don't Exist Again today. Just to oh, you did? Memory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it's like, it's even better the second time round. I don't really? know. Yeah, I just really, really, really enjoyed it. Oh, um, thanks, man. Thank you. Yeah, them, um, the story's amazing, but them drone shots, they're like another level. Well, I appreciate like, how, it. I, I, how, did I you, the... how did you get all the mist in the valley at the right time? <laughs> every every single drone shot, you have the mist. <laughs> I was, dude, I was like so hard set on like, I'm only going to do drone shots either like sunset hour or super, super early in the morning. And so like the mist stuff was like, we we were getting up at like 6.30 a.m., you know, yeah. and uh it's just like we gotta fly a drone you know <laughs> so i would like the ones in the camp you know i remember i was with uh john frico which is the he was uh the our fixer but he was the guy who um really introduced us to the Karini people and mm. brought us to so many of those places brought me into camp i think he brought uh, i think he brought yeah he brought angeline to camp at one point and uh yeah so when i got the drone i bought it in malaysia um because it's like it's like a lot more expensive in Thailand. Like they've got some kind of import tax on it. So I went to Malaysia and bought there, came back and then um, he took me into the camp. And yeah, I was like, let's, we're gonna get up at like 6 a.m. <laughs> and he's like, all right, man. So yeah, it's just so freaking early, but it was so worth it. <laughs> yeah, what drone is it? Is it an Inspire or something like that? Oh, or... uh, it's a Phantom 4 Pro. Phantom 4, right. Yeah, I still think it's like, one of their best drones, man. Like, I don't know if you can buy it anymore. Like, I saw on the site it was out of stock. Like, they stopped. Yeah. You know, but um, I actually lost it. I Did I tell you that? I lost nah. it. Yeah. yeah man, I, I lo- think I actually remember seeing that on Facebook, actually. Really? Like, in some water. Was it in water? Or, like, yeah. It, it was in the Philippines. <laughs> it wasn't even, like, in the jungle, no. man. I lost it when I just was chilling on vacation in the Philippines and uh, flying around some islands. And it just... Actually, I took it off from a boat, and within like ten seconds, it was just like it was going, and it just went, poof, 
like <laughs> dropped like a rock. I was like, what happened? <laughs> like it had battery, it had signal. Like, dude, I didn't really even know. But the crazy thing is, like, did you see the video I posted about it? Uh, I made this whole video um, because I actually caught it on camera. The guy who was driving the boat, he was like, no, I'm going to find it. And we're like, he like insisted on like trying to find it, like swimming for it and stuff. And we're like, all right, like, I mean, just, you know, don't like tire yourself out, you know? And so he, he swam for like, I don't know, almost like an hour. And at that point we're like, you know, just let it go. Like, you know, you don't have to find it for me. Like it's, it's gone. Um, but it's like, it actually happened to be in a part of like, because we're kind of close to islands. So like, it was like a shallow part in the ocean. So he managed to find it. Um, and I remember I, it was like right when I pulled my phone, I just started taking a video for some reason. And he comes out with it. That's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, how is that even possible? He like freaking found the drone. Um, so it's just like, yeah, that guy is amazing. Uh, <laughs> I got the whole thing on okay. camera. Was it was it in any kind of working order, like uh, place to repair it? Or? Yeah, I mean, I I couldn't take it anywhere until we were back in the city in Manila, and at that point, it's like everything corroded, man. You can see it, you can see it, like uh, even on the outside. There's like part, like the camera and stuff. It's like corrosion, like salt corrosion all over it. And uh, I I took it to a drone shop and I told the guy like what happened. He's like, yeah, like I mean, I'll clean it for you, but like. <laughs> he's like I, I i'm not gonna promise anything and then he's he's like yeah it's it's toast like he's like the best thing you could do is yeah. like maybe sell the controller or something i'm like oh, okay but well i had oh, a good had right. a good did you manage to rescue the the footage was that safe the memory yeah card? the memory card survived <laughs> yeah the sand disc man good man so, so you got the footage of it just kind I of freaking out and going unfortunately no because i didn't hit the record button when that happened I, I don't know. Like some people, they hit record right <laughs> when they start flying a drone. But I had, I was being cheap and I had like a 16 gig SD card or something. Yeah. And like, so I was just being very conservative with shots. So I, I didn't catch that moment. We've been good for the video though. Um, yeah, I find that with drone. I think when I first got it, I was just recording the whole time up, set off. It makes sense. Coming back, then I'd have huge files. But then I was like, actually, this is stupid. I've got these huge files. I don't know what to do with them. It's 4K. Yeah, gotcha. My MacBook sounds like it's going to blow up. But then since I stopped doing that, I feel like I always miss out really good <laughs> shots when I think I'm recording, but I'm not even recording. And I'm oh. Like, oh, man. And I press record oh, man. <laughs> to stop the shot, and it just starts recording. It's like, oh, shit. That, yeah. But, um, I'm, I've only got the Mavic, uh, the Mavic Pro, so I'd love to um, have a little fly with the Phantom. Yeah, but it's got to be nice for... Um travel and stuff you know like that was the thing with the phantom i mean yeah i kind of i feel like those were the golden days because back then there wasn't so much restriction at least in like southeast asia with flying drones i don't know how it is now like i haven't flown drone in like two years but um yeah i mean i always had to carry down the plane and stuff <laughs> and i almost got taken yeah it's so big yeah you, you got i didn't have like a backpack for it i just had the the case that comes with it uh, which is actually a pretty nice case um, but yeah, I remember it, it almost got taken in uh, Burma when I was flying out of the Yangon yeah. airport. Uh, I was it was at the door security too. Like I came in and this lady's like, "Yeah, I gotta check what's in here." I'm like, "All right," and then she's like, "Yeah, we don't allow drones in our country." I'm like, "Okay," and she's like, "Well, you, you can't take it." <laughs> I'm like, "Oh, what? What? What are you gonna do?" And she's like, "Well, you got you gotta leave it here." I'm like, "Well, where do I leave it?" And she's like, well, leave it with a friend. And I'm like, what? Like, I don't have any friends in Yangon. 
Like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> and actually, John was with me. Um, I was getting actually getting pretty mad. I was like, just telling her, like, yeah, I don't know what the heck you expect me to do. Like, I I won't come back with it. And she's like, well, you can't fly out with it. And so John like steps in and he starts speaking for me and he says they're like, okay, like, can you call your supervisor? And at first she was like, mm. she was she wasn't really like having it, but then somehow he like convinced them to call her supervisor. So she did and ask him for permission and he's like yeah it's fine <laughs> <laughs> it's just like when people go mad with a bit little bit of authority or power she wanted to yeah but know, she's right they don't allow drones in it but i was telling her like hey like then why did you guys let me through customs with it like how did i know i didn't know <laughs> so you were leaving yangon and going somewhere else going back to thailand yeah so you was going back to thailand and she said, you're not allowed to take it even though you was leaving yeah. their country. That's that's even more ridiculous. That's why I was so mad. I was like, that's just yeah. like reverse. I don't know what it is. <laughs> and is that a law then in, in Burma and Myanmar now? You're not allowed drones like at all? Um, I think they've always had that rule. And it's just like yeah. different people enforce it differently. And I actually have a friend who's he's from Seattle. I'm from Seattle. And um, he lives in Yangon now doing like film work and stuff i think he works for an organization right now i forget which one but he told me because he had a phantom 3 pro and he's had there for years but um at one point he said that he accidentally crashed it in some village or something and the police like someone in the village reported it and so the police came and confiscated it um mm. and they were like yeah like you're not allowed to have drums here and stuff but he said but the weirdest thing is like they became friends anyways <laughs> Like if he came friends with the police, like, and they were like, "Yeah, we should like drink sometime." And like, I was like, "Wait, so they took your drone?" But then they were like being chill and they want to hang out with you. He's like, "Yeah, pretty much." I'm like, "What?" <laughs> it's, I don't yeah. know what to say about that. <laughs> that kind of thing I feel like happens out in South yeah. Asia quite quite a lot. Yeah. Of the time. <laughs> if you're nice to the police and you can charm them, if you've been in trouble, you know, you can find yourself having a few beers with them in a few hours' time. Yeah showing photos of each other's family and stuff like that. I've been in that situation before yeah. when I was younger, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember I was flying my drone around, like, it was in the Isan province, and uh, I was flying at, like, the Rocket Festival. I don't know if you heard about it. Uh, I've seen, seen yeah, photos, yeah. Um, I was filming a drone of a rocket launching, and there's, like, Thai military police right there. They, they, they just kind of looked at it, and they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> but I think it's, it's so far out, you know, it's like, they're just too chill about it. Yeah, they seem to be quite strict about it in Thailand now, though. Like um, with all the permits, you have to. Yeah, it's not just as simple as it used. I to know, be. and um, right before I lost my drone, I was trying to go through the process of getting legal papers for it, and I remember I like, mm. I I don't know how it is now. Maybe it's better, but it they just introduced a system, and so like, you had to go to this office that was like called the CAAT, and like. I don't know, like submit these documents and stuff like that. Um, so I did that, but they were just kind of like really weirded out about it. And they were like, well, like, we'll like call you and email you or something. And like, they never did. And then like <laughs> maybe a month later, I lost my drone. So I was like, well, that's pointless. <laughs> yeah, it didn't even matter. Yeah. You know, when um, when you were doing the pre-production for like, like We Don't Exist, which obviously was quite a big, big production you were shooting in quite a lot of different locations and i guess you didn't have too much for a big team but it was quite a substantial team 
did you have to like think about permits and things for shooting that or <laughs> i'm just like laughing because we <laughs> we didn't um yeah we, we never got any permits uh i mean i wouldn't recommend not but um <laughs> i mean we were like a pretty tight team like it was really just most of the production was um ansley me john and ansley and uh, especially in burma and mm. it was more just like he had some connections with some leaders and um, some of them were like they were not really um they were just kind of a little too they were being really cautious and stuff and they didn't know what our intentions were and uh they didn't want us to be in certain places but then there's some other people we met who were like totally down and so we just kind of went with it and went with the flow and just see where it went. And then eventually we had found ourselves, you know, in the zone where you're supposed to have permits for sure. And, um, <laughs> would that be like the refugee camps themselves? Yeah. Idea well, there's ID right. Well, there is the, um, IDP villages in Eastern Burma, like in Kareni state. Mm. And for sure we weren't supposed to be in those places. Um, but the camp, I've been in there a lot without getting permission, but I actually have been, I managed to get permission one time. Like I met the ex camp leader and he was willing to bring me in there, um, which is like so dope. I never thought that I would have an opportunity to do that, but I came in with like all my gear and my drone and we went through the front entrance and they just let us in. Um, I never even seen the front entrance. <laughs> so that was surreal. <laughs> Yeah, um, but I wasn't allowed to like sleep overnight, so I had to leave, come back with them at night. But it was the weirdest thing because yeah. I was there. I was with like cameras, you know, walking around, and there's like Thai military police, and it's like it was just the weirdest thing because they were just, I mean, they knew that I was in there and I had permission, but before I was like always hiding from them. Like I always like kind of covered my face and my hands and stuff, and just kind of wear like refugee clothing, you know, and. Um, mm -hmm. Sorry, I was just dressing my game. I was clipping a little bit. No yeah, so it's it's just weird to like switch from that mindset of like, you know, just kind of being undercover to like being out in the open and um, yeah, just not having to worry about that. But yeah, that was like the only time I really got him with permission. Um, so even to enter the camp, even without filming, it was necessary to get permission. We were supposed to. From the authorities. We were supposed to, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the story, the story is the most important. <laughs> that thing, was the right? drive, man. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, it was a risk, but it was. They were calculated risks, you know. And like, I really trusted John a lot. I just kind of went with his intuition, and whenever he felt like something was comfortable, I'd just be like, "All right, man. Like, I trust you," you know. And um, he yeah. really took care of us a lot, and he never put us in a situation that was like we couldn't get out of. It seemed like like there's always kind of a way out to some degree um i would say the only real close call was like in burma when we were in one of the idp villages and we were supposed to kind of rendezvous with um well to back go backtrack a little bit um we came to that village with soldiers like Karini soldiers like they had to escort us through the jungle which took like i don't know i feel like it was like a 12-hour day of hiking um, we had to like go over mountains and cross a river and stuff. And, uh, yeah, so we were supposed to go back with them. But once we were in the village, like we were finding like more stories and 
we all felt like, yeah, I think we need to like, um, because they wanted to come back in like three days. And we all just mutually agreed like, well, let's kind of uh, try to plan something different. And we managed to meet another soldier um, and he spoke really good English. He knew we were there. He found out we were there. So he just like kind of showed up and he said, yeah, like I'm here to meet you guys. And we're like, oh, wow, cool. And we ended up interviewing him. He's actually in a documentary. Um, he's one of the, the, the younger soldier that we interviewed. And he said, yeah, I can set up a rendezvous so you can go to another village and um, they'll take you to like this truck, which will bring you back into like the city. And we're like, great. Because we wanted to kind of explore a little bit more, go to another village and see if we can uh, meet other people and have more time to like assess just this, like the people, like the situation and like the story and feel people out. Um, but the day that we're supposed to rendezvous, it's like, I don't know, there's some miscommunication that happened or something and like they weren't there. And we didn't, we couldn't like, I think there's like, we had someone's number, but we didn't have service. So we had to like go, someone, the village leader escorted us to another village where we could get service. Um, like, I can't honestly remember exactly all the details, but I just remember that everything is very confusing and we didn't really know what mm. was happening. Um, but John managed to like get some young, like young people to like give us a ride to where he felt like we were supposed to meet that truck um, on like the back of motorbikes and stuff. And once we got on those bikes and we were like in transit to like through the jungle to that place where the, the truck was supposed to be, um, I remember we passed this guy, this older guy who was just walking on the trail and he stopped the motorbike in front of us and he seemed like really angry. And it was actually the one that Ansley's on the back of too. So she, he like saw her and I was like, huh, that's kind of weird. Like, I didn't know like what they were talking about, but then like we went along anyways and um, we ended up being that truck and they got us out of there. But later on we found out that that guy that we met on the trail was actually an immigration officer who was doing he happened to be out there doing a head count um with the villages and so they were like you know what's going on so they actually contacted like one of the leaders that we had met like one of the Karenti leaders and so he called john he said hey like the burmese are like asking they they said they saw you guys out there and they're asking us like why are there foreigners out there like what are you doing um, and it's, it's like the whole situation, it's like really sensitive, um, with just like the, they're trying to do, have a peace treaty and everything. And so they're just like, everything's really tense. So they're kind of freaking out. And, um, but they, they what they ended up doing is they ended up making up the story <laughs> that we were like, uh, foreigners who were trying to find some caves around there, which there were that you can actually go to as tourists. And we got lost. They like found us and tried to like help us out and get us out of there and they believed it so they're like oh okay <laughs> yeah but, quick yeah quick. yeah so they they really saved our butts and um yeah so like we were kind of freaking out when we heard that they found us so i thought that they were gonna like deport us or something because at that time we were staying in the hotel yeah. and so they could kind of easily find us i think and um yeah it was kind of really surreal and scary but then they they end up kind of like saving our butts and with that story and then we were pretty much fine <laughs> i mean were there any other kind of scary incidents because if you, in the documentary you obviously see you were filming people who had automatic rifles um kind of like a 
old school rifle where you got to put the gunpowder in as well like all kinds of yeah and, and like there's been a lot of fighting in that region right so was was did you have any other like moments where you're a bit worried yeah um i mean i know that there's been some i think around that time where maybe it was i don't remember if it's before we were out there or a little bit after but there was a little bit of fighting, fighting that happened or some kind of shooting um yeah it was there wasn't anything that happened uh but it definitely felt really tense and um i i mean we trusted the soldiers we were with like they were they really were they took care of us like really well like they cooked for us um and they all they even carried like our backpacks when we got really tired they were like these guys were so tough <laughs> i mean because yeah. i think they i mean they do this all the time they walk this path all the time and so they're conditioned for it but we were like we never we haven't we were in shape and we hadn't been hiking and we had our camera gear and stuff so i remember how tough it was but these guys were just kind of bulletproof um <laughs> And they were like, it seemed like yeah, they were in their 40s too. So they've been in a lot. I know they've been in war. Um, yeah. 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 For a soldier still to be a soldier when they're 40 years old, they must have been through a lot. Yeah. They must be quite battle hardened. And, yeah. Because in the documentary, you know, it says that this is like one of the longest wars that's ever taken place in the world because it's been going on since um, Myanmar's independence exactly. in 1948. Right, right. That's right. You know, and it's still happening in other regions of Burma. Um, you know, like with the Rohingya and also the um, the uh, um, the Kachin in Kachin State. I know that they're still mm. fighting. So it's still recently. I've seen a lot of things coming out of there in Kachin. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I hear a little bit about it because I have a friend who's done some journalism there, and so he's told me. I've seen him post on Facebook about it and stuff. But yeah, it's still ongoing, and um, that was you know that was like the driving factor of like you know why we want to make a documentary because we just couldn't believe that there's a story um in this conflict that had very little coverage that's been going on for you know like over almost 70 years and um yeah. we hadn't seen any seen some little clips on youtube you know and some archival footage and stuff but no like actual documentary about like really any of the um the minority groups so we were like let's do it you know like let's just make this happen yeah totally and uh yeah commend you for doing it were they kind of oh, <laughs> were they kind of surprised then like at the fact that you guys had come with cameras to make a documentary because they mustn't have seen many other people come from the west or to to to, to make these type of things yeah um yeah it's an interesting question like i know we, we definitely thought about it we were like we don't know how these people are going to react and um, they were very, they're generally very stoic and very humble people. So um, they were always very nice no matter what. And I think the only times we ever felt like we had kind of reactions was when there was like fear, which I mean, rightfully so, you know, because we were ju basically journalists out there and they knew that um, we weren't supposed to be, you know, doing this kind of coverage without like they, we've had some of them ask us if we had permits and we said no. So, you know, they were a little afraid because like if they were like caught helping us or something like the Burmese would like, you know, be like, hey, like, why are you like, why are you involved with this? You know, because they, they were trying to come up with this peace treaty with the Burmese military government and um, or with Myanmar, the Myanmar government. And uh, 
if you know something like that would be definitely questionable and it would it could definitely hurt the community like the process and um so we were trying to like find a bounce of like how can we do this but not like endanger people and i think that's just like i said that's kind of where john came in like we just trusted him and went with his gut and it, it pretty much seemed to be the right balance because i don't think um like like i said you know nothing no one really did get in trouble um we didn't actually get in trouble um there were close calls but um people were generally very helpful like they really wanted they just wanted to get their story out like that was the thing we noticed like pretty much almost everyone we talked to like and we told them we were making a documentary like they were open to it um and they were open they were always open to being interviewed i don't think we ever yeah. had anyone say no which that that was the other thing it's like you know Ansley and i would always turn to each other it's like i think they just really want to like talk about stuff like they just want to talk about the past and talk about their situation and stuff because they never really have had a chance to that's it when people are given a platform who previously haven't been able to talk about the struggles they've been through then they're going to want to share and open up and let the world know what's been going on yeah yeah exactly um and that's that's you know what we found about them and that was just amazing i mean um it made it so delightful because every time we were um giving someone that chance to tell their their story it was just like that i was like this is why i do filmmaking like this is you know the this is like where my passion stems from is just what it can do for people like that who just need a platform definitely i think it's kind of you know, it can be therapeutic in a way for them people to actually think about and talk about the things they've been through and kind of come face to face with their own demons yeah. from the past. And you can help them yeah. in, in that way as well as spreading the message out. Um, right. right. So, so is that what really motivated you really just to kind of make the world more aware of what's going on out there? And how, in fact, did you become aware of it in the first place? Um. Yeah, it's very interesting how that happened. Um, and I think that was like, it was kind of, it happened right around the time that I was kind of in a place where I was trying to understand what really drove me to want to be a filmmaker. And at the time I was working as an editor for a YouTube channel, which um, was, it was fun, but I was like, there's something else, you know, and I know there's more. And you know, I've already known Ansley for, I think we, we met a few times, but we actually met on Facebook because she actually had uh, a friend who was also a friend of my sister's. So we had like this mutual connection. And um, so she, she, had, I, we talked about um, wanting to do a documentary someday um, somewhere like in Southeast Asia, but we didn't really know what it, what it was or what it would be about. And it's just like one of those things we just talked about like, hey, yeah, it'd be cool someday, you know. Um, and one day she like came to me and she said, Hey, like I have this idea. Um, she's like, I think we can do a documentary about like, I think she, that's when she brought up like refugees from Myanmar or something like that. And I thought it was funny because right around that time I was like thinking about Myanmar a lot and I couldn't know, I didn't know why I was like, there's something about that country. Like, I feel like I want to know more about what's happening there because I've already been in Thailand a few times and, um, was getting a little acquainted with it, but I didn't know anything about Myanmar. And so she came to me and she's like, yeah, like, I think that um, we can do a documentary that could really like tell a story about like some refugees because I know that there's some situations going on there and we should like look into it more. And I was like totally on board. I was like, yeah, let's, let's like, you know, maybe someday we can like find something. 
Um, and and uh, I don't know. It really something like really hit me after that conversation. And I was having like a break coming up with work, and so I don't know something got inside of me, and I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna book a ticket to Thailand for two weeks. And so I booked a ticket, and I told her I said I booked a ticket. Like, we should just find a story, and um, if you're down, then like let me know, you know, and meet me there. And she's like, all right, <laughs> let's do this. <laughs> and it just put something in the motion. And I think this was like two weeks before even the flight. Like that's when I booked it. It was so last minute. And so it put something into motion. And so we were like, okay, well, let's like try to find some contacts or just find something. So we started talk, talking to different people we knew there um, and asking him like, hey, do you know anything about like people who come from Myanmar who are like, you know, refugees or like who come across the border or something? And um, she ended up having a friend of a friend or she had a friend who knew someone who lived in Chiang Mai who had worked with refugees. So they got connected and um, they talked on the phone and she ended up telling her about like, about this refugee camp. Um, dog, dog, dog. <laughs> you good? <laughs> One second. One oh second. yeah. You got a visitor. No, Go you're on. good. Go on, Brownie. Get out. Go on. <laughs> Go on. Go downstairs. <laughs> Sorry. Start scratching. Oh, yeah, got, okay. yeah, carry on, man. I'll edit that out. Don't worry. <laughs> no, it's <all> right. <laughs> um, yeah, and so she knew about this refugee camp, or she had been here, there, or something, and about these people, and so it was like enough information that like, or she got to know her enough that she was like, yeah, I'd be willing to meet you and you guys in Chiang Mai, and she is American. This girl is this um, uh, Sarah Lugo. Yeah. Yeah. Do you actually know who she is? Yeah, I met her in, in Bali a few times. Oh, wow. That's so crazy. Because at the end, no today, way. after watching it, I watched the credits and I saw Sarah Lugo and I was like, oh, shit, no way. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, man, that's, a, that's such a crazy coincidence. Yeah, yeah. Sarah Lugo. So she um, connected the kind of... The yeah, she connected... For you guys. Exactly. Yeah, she was a, the starting point. And so we met her for coffee in Chiang Mai when we got there. Um, like literally the next day, like it's like like Damien Matter. We're just like let's do this, and um, well, actually, it was before we met. We 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 she told us about John Frico, and so Ansley ended up calling him, and she said, "Hey, I'll fly you to Chiang Mai so you can meet us." Because he was actually in Bangkok at the time, um, and he was like studying, but it was like spring break for him, so he had some time off, and so we flew him to uh, Chiang Mai, and we met with him and Sarah Lugo for coffee. And that was just started, like, she just started telling us, like, you know, about um, the Kranny people and about the refugee camp. And I just remember it was, like, so, it was hard to understand um, in the beginning. Like, we just couldn't really get, I couldn't really visualize what the situation was and what she was talking about. Um, and we also had uh, Jenna Spitz with us, too. She's a photographer who was a friend of Ansley, and um, she also flew out from Paris uh, to just come with us and just see where it goes. So we did start as like kind of a bigger team, which I think mm -hmm. was what you were recalling that we were like, kind of like this, there's like five of us or something like that. And so we were like, okay, well, let's just take a van out there in the morning, like the next day. And they're all like, all right, let's do it. And um, so we all took a van all the way to like Mayonson, and um, which is like 
two hour, two and a half hours from the border or something. So yeah, the next day we 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 took the van there like super early in the morning, and uh, we ended up reaching this village, which is um, which I think yeah you know about, which is called Dokida. It's like right outside the refugee camp, um, and it's a Thai village, so we were allowed to be there. It wasn't like because at the time like we she had already told us like well you can't really go inside the camp, and she's like I've been in there, but it's very risky. And so originally we were like, okay, so we can't go in there. It's fine. But this Thai village was special because they have um, classes, like the the education system in the refugee camp is allowed to have classes outside the camp in this Thai village so that they can have foreign teachers come in and and teach English. Um, So the refugees who aren't really supposed to come out of the camp have like this special permission or this like understanding that they're able to like come to this village and so they come in and out of the camp all the time to this village. Um, and there's a lot of students there. So I remember as soon as we arrived, there was like, there must have been like over 50. It seemed like there were like 100 students or something. There were a lot. And they were playing soccer yeah. and stuff. And it was like, like where are we? Like, who, you know, we just had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. But there's just tons of people. And uh, so it's just, we were just like thrown into it. And we were just kind of like filming right away and meeting different people. And um, I remember the next day we already like interviewed um, this guy who he's in the documentary and his name's Shari and he's like, um, he's part of uh, Kentar Wadi Times, which is like a, um, like a, like a news media, a Karini news media, like inside Karini state, but they also have uh, an office in this Thai village in Dakota. And so we were interviewing him and just ask him like all these questions about like who they are, like what happened, like, you know, what, what's, what is the story behind this refugee camp? Like, you know, are you allowed to like live in Thailand? Like what, you know, so we were just kind of learning about this as we were interviewing him, which was like, it's just that whole interview was crazy because it was so, it was like, we were just genuinely asking agents. We had no idea. Um, And even yeah i just remember that whole interview was amazing um and it's just like yeah we had to interview more people like there's a huge story here and so that's kind of where it where it started you know um yeah interesting because i mean yeah. a lot of the time when you go into an interview you kind of already know what the person's going to be talking around you know what you want to ask them right and you're actually interviewing someone and there and then on the spot you're actually learning about the story more and it draws you into it that must have been a really yeah. interesting moment. And I guess it's a... Did oh, it you was... extend your stay in Thailand then for longer than two weeks after that? Or what was the deal with uh, going forward? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't because I had to go back to work. Uh, and um, and Ansley had some gig or something she had to go to. So she was only able to be there for like a week. And so she flew out. or she We all just left that place um, about a week later. We were there for, I think, five or six days. Although at the end, I did actually, um, like John was kind of telling me, I was going to know him better. And he said, you know, I can actually take you into camp if you want to see it. And he was like reassuring me, like, I, it can be safe. Like, I, I've done this before. Um, just like, you know, dress this way, like wear these kind of clothes, you know, and, um, you know, don't do this, don't do that. And you should be fine. So I just trusted him. And that was the real moment that... Uh, it's like I just when I experienced that when we went into camp and just seeing it, it just blew my mind. Like I didn't understand 
I still didn't understand like what it looked like, how big it was, like just what the conditions were like. And there's a stark difference between that Thai village and the camp. Like I just, that's like one of the first things I remember when I think of the first time like I went in the camp was just how different it felt from that Thai village. And it didn't even feel like I was in Thailand anymore at that point. It felt like I was in a whole different country and it was surreal. And I couldn't like, it was huge. It was like a city. It was just like this bamboo city that went on for forever. And it's like, I didn't, I, they told me it was big, but I just, I don't know. It's like, you get these ideas in your head, but once you see something, it's just like, it's different from when you imagine. And it just blew my mind. And um, so, you know, I had to go back to birth. And so we went back or I went, I went back to America and um, I've been, you know, I think after like a month of being back, I was going over the footage and already I was like, we didn't get enough. The story is huge. Mm. Like I had to go back, you know, like there's gotta be more footage. I was telling Ansley, like, you know, this could be like a five minute little film, but we can make this something so much bigger. And she's like, yeah, I agree. Like, you know, we should do something about it. And that's kind of like the thing that um, put me on the path of like actually quitting my job and selling all my things and moving to Thailand later that year. Yeah. <laughs> Big step. And it, it was just, it was a huge step, but it's, it's, I would say just seeing the camp was probably what really pushed me because that was like, that just blew my mind. I never seen anything like that. And, you know, I, I really wanted to do the story justice and not only that, but like, I've always kind of wanted to live abroad and I've seen these nomadic filmmakers at the time and I was interested in that lifestyle, but I didn't really, um, I didn't know like if it was something I was going to do or something, but I would say this whole story just kind of pushed me there. And so, you know, I saved my money and um, quit my job and moved out there for like, I just gave myself a year. I was like, well, I'll just move out here for a year. And, you know, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. You know, Ansley ended up coming out there for like three months, I think. And um, we'd never done something like that before. So we were just kind of playing the whole thing by ear. And, you know, I never made a documentary like at this at this level, you know, at this like kind of length in the story. Um, so it was a lot of like trial and error. A lot of just trying different things. And that's when how we ended up in Burma because we were already in Thailand. We like shared a house together and um, we're like, yeah, we have to go to Cranny State at some point. So we planned this whole thing. And um, that's when we were like, you know, that's when we actually got to go out there and go to those villages and um, those IDP villages, you know. Yeah. So originally yeah. You, you guys had planned to like make a short five minute kind of little mini documentary. And then after getting to Thailand and realizing the scope of the story, you were like, nah, this this needs a lot longer. That is exactly right. Yeah. 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 And, um, yeah, I almost, I mean, you know, it's part of me. It's like, I wanted to be a feature length, but then, um, it ended up being kind of like, you know, in between a short film and a feature length film. But, um, the whole process was just, uh, I think it's just trying to understand how to tell the story. Which took a, it took a long time. Actually, even though I told you I was out there for a year, I ended up coming back again. So I was out there for a total of like two years. Mm -hmm. And so it was like kind of this ongoing process of like 
editing it while I was in Thailand and then like going back out there with John to like the camp. I probably went back there like eight or 10 times. Yeah, just to get um, all the And we shots. gone back to, yeah, because it's like, once I started editing, it's like, yeah, I need these shots and um, I should have gotten, you know. That's it, so, man. You've got like a, jig- it was a, growing- got a jigsaw, right? And you've got all the pieces yeah. missing. You're like, oh, that goes so well there. And you go, yeah, yeah. I, have you ever been through that? Like, oh. I mean, you've made a lot of short documentaries, you know? And that's the thing. It's like, I kind of wish that, you know, um, I mean, it was the whole thing was a growing process for me as a filmmaker. I was trying to find out, like, how to tell that story because I was trying to wrap my head around it. But also, like, just kind of my style of editing in in um that those kind of documentaries and mm-hmm. it was just the whole thing was just this process of like i felt like i was going through film school again or something um <laughs> <laughs> uh, and just kind of living through it and um we were just you know we weren't really in a rush but we were kind of i mean we we're definitely setting deadlines for ourselves and like ansley was extremely helpful and um organizing like you know in the post-production like she really did well with um kind of organizing all these different stories and into this amazing outline and then um you know once we had like rough drafts of the film like we started just that's when i went back to america for like three months and we did kind of a tour like to these different korean communities of rep they're like people who have resettled from the camp to america and just kind of demoing like just kind of doing like these test screenings like because it wasn't fully complete and just seeing how people reacted to it. Um, and then going back to Thailand, getting more shots, like <laughs> it was. <laughs> so how many times do you think you went back to Thailand to get all the, <laughs> all the shots? Like, Yeah, well, I would say definitely two times. Um, yeah. And then there are more times I've been back since then, but not for the, the film was done at that point. Um, because at the end we ended up doing a Kickstarter and raising like 15 grand to like, just get enough money to like, submit to film festivals we want to hire a music composer dustin la who that guy's like amazing um i know i think you got to talk to him at some point yeah and um you know there's other expenses we had to take care of so um that just kind of like helped us finish the whole thing and polish it polish it up and um yeah so like yeah i guess yeah two times i've been back yeah yeah when you when you sort of passionate about a story and you really want to tell it well it's worth all them trips going back just to get the perfect shot because i guess you feel like you'd regret it if you never did and you feel like yeah it wouldn't be at its full potential as a documentary yeah for sure um yeah and i don't regret it you know like i said it felt like it it, it was there was a lot of tough grind that went into that you know of like like i said with like the editing process and going back but when I look back, it's like, I don't regret it. Like it really helped me learn a lot, you know, like I still feel like I have a lot to learn, but um, it was kind of like, it was like, uh, it was just like a, um, it was, it felt like, like I was going through documentary filmmaking school. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, your documentary, it, you had so many different characters. So to weave like a narrative and a story together with so many different characters, it's a it's a massive struggle. It's not something I've done many times. The majority of my films are all single character focused to type, kind of tell a whole story. But when you've got so many different people trying to edit edit it all together and link it all together, it, uh, it must be a bit of a, a nightmare. Well, actually, going, yeah, sorry. you got really... Oh, you're good. Yeah, keep going, keep going. Um. 
yeah you have a that's a really strong point and i yeah you're right i think that's that was where the most that was where the real like the most challenging thing about that process was is like how do we weave these stories together because the way we approached it was just interviewing all kinds of different people and learning the story through that way kind of living through their stories um and then in the end it's like now we got all these interviews how do we weave this together so there was no like real main character um i think you know and when i look back it's like that's the thing that like next time i feel like i want to do is i want to do more of that kind of style where you actually focus on like one person's story or like one character most for the most part um and you're right like yeah a lot of your documentaries are that way so i think it's really cool and i I haven't really had a chance to um, do something like that on like that scale of a film. Um, and it's something I've been wanting to try for for the next project I end up working on. <laughs> That's interesting because what I want to do is do something that what you kind of did. Really? Kinda did. Yeah, because I mean, it's always you always want to kind of do something different, don't you? And change things up. And I've been focusing on singular portraits for a long for, time. So the yeah, idea sure. of doing something with like a lot of people in and you may maybe getting it over that 40 minute mark 50 minute mark i feel like that'd be an interesting uh challenge because you keep you want to keep on challenging yourself as a filmmaker i guess yeah yeah you're right um and uh yeah like like i said i haven't done a lot of like um main one character stories before um but uh yeah what is there something you're thinking of or something like you want to do that's that involves like multiple characters you know what i think it's like you said like I pretty much go into every story thinking that this is going to be a five minute story or between five and 10 minutes. When I find something that I feel like, no, this is a big story, it needs telling, then that's what I will tell. I don't want to kind of force myself into a, into a story that doesn't really require 40 minutes. You know, I want to really feel like the urge to do it. Um, so, yeah, I yeah, totally understand I, that. I don't really know. Hopefully, I'll stumble across something one day. And uh, I think you will, started. man. That's yeah. so cool. Like, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. I've thought about before, though. Like, if you have like a lot of short documentaries, like between five ten minutes, you can often use them as a kind of like a trailer or a case study, and maybe you know use it to get funding to make something longer or to dive deeper into the into the subject. So. Maybe I'll revisit one of the past topics I've done and look at how I can expand that and turn it into a bigger documentary. That could be a, a starting point, maybe. Yeah, but that's something that's been really effective for you, like making these, you know, five minute to ten minute little films. Um, it seemed to be, you know, really effective in just getting yourself out there and getting yourself connected with like bigger projects. Um, and that's something like I feel like I haven't really gotten the chance to do yet. Uh, so I think yeah. that's really cool, you know, and that's really inspired me seeing you do that. Thanks, man. Yeah, I guess it's it's just making content that can be easily digested in this era of social media and yeah, TikToks and Snapchats and Instagram <laughs> yeah. stories. Like, it's unfortunate, but people don't have much time to stick around and watch something. But if you can package it into a in a into a pill that they can swallow, like a, you know, five to ten minute video then hopefully, you know, it, it can get um, shared and get quite a lot of engagement. Um, and yeah, yeah, definitely the short films seem to have attracted quite a lot of attention. And you see like a lot of platforms doing kind of a similar thing these days. Um, 
is that a direction you want to move towards then the kind of shorts that you can pump out quicker rather than big projects that take years um yeah it is and um that's kind of where my mind was kind of shifting towards like i mean before this virus broke out and well yeah <laughs> well yeah so but you're yeah you're um it is something that i want to focus more on i think mm-hmm. in the future once things are like more opened up um just getting more content out instead of focusing on just one project for a long time because like i had this perfectionist thing and i just want to break that you know i feel like yeah it's good to have it's good to be detail oriented but also it's like a double-edged sword it can hold you back and i feel like it's it's held me back a lot of ways so i feel like maybe one of the best ways to break through that is just putting out a lot more content like shorter content um and but there's also that thing about making a feature like film is like like everyone wants to do it you know at some point yeah. in your life and you know even if it doesn't you know you're right not a lot of people you don't get as much attention to it as like a short film Unless it's like, it gets into like you know, um, <laughs> uh, what's it called? Um, Sundance or something. Sundance, like thank you. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe that's a different story, but. But that, you that's know, the but, thing. I think with filmmakers like me and you, like, some people make films because they enjoy making films. But I think we enjoy making films, but we also enjoy helping to spread a message or to spread awareness. So. For us, the like we enjoy making them, but the engagement and the reach that they get is also so important to us because, you know, we want to be raising awareness for issues. So yeah, you know, maybe if, if a lot of the things I did instead of making shorts, I made features. Maybe it wouldn't even have got as much um, attention. So it's a it's a struggle really choosing between the two. Um, I'm the same with you in in regards to perfection. Um, it's take, took me like six months, maybe more, I think more to edit like my Muay Thai documentary. And that was only like eight minutes. So in the case, it was of amazing. Like 40, <laughs> a 40 minute documentary, it take me seven years or something like that. So I'm yeah. quite scared, I'm quite scared. Have you ever thought about like working with an editor or some, something like that to help push out more content quicker? I haven't. And I think. I think I have a trust, you know, it's just a perfectionist thing. And that's a good point, you know, and um, maybe that's something I got to try, you know, like I actually don't really know a lot of editors out there. Um, I mean, is that something you've done before? Is that something you do? Um, I've, I've never done it. Like with my personal passion projects, I, I feel like I have to edit them um, because that's why I do them. It's kind of a labor of love and I want to tell the message as I see it, but yeah. You know, like you said about pumping out content quicker, I was thinking, you know, just kind of trying to make a video a month, like a little short portrait it doesn't have to be really well thought out, doesn't have to be perfect. Maybe like a one minute, two minute about someone interested in the local area. In that case, you know, maybe you could start kind of working on them trust issues with editing and getting somebody <laughs> else to edit them because you don't care about them as much. And you could maybe start building on that. Um but yeah, I definitely have a problem the same. Yeah, I get that. Um, but you've, you've seen it put out a lot of stuff. and I haven't I haven't released a documentary since 2018. Oh, that's true. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. So that, that that's the great thing about making them. It opened up a lot of commercial opportunities. Um, yeah. So I wasn't like a starving artist anymore. But then once you kind of get sucked into that commercial and corporate world of filmmaking, 
you end up just accepting loads of jobs because you never know when they're going to disappear and everything like that. And it's, yeah, you, you don't have time. Um, I'm, I'm editing a documentary now that I shot in 2017 in Bali. That's the last thing oh, wow. I have actually shot a documentary. It's so, been long. <laughs> it's been a long time, man. Um, but at the same time, you know, I've been trying to build up a, an agency, been building up little things on the side. So hopefully when I've built up like a, a strong commercial client base, then I can get back into the documentaries and spend my time doing what I love. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear like your perspective on that because, and you know, I all, all the things I've been trying to do is like, well, I want to get more of my work out there and get more recognized so I can like pick up commercial projects and, um, you know, around the world so like I can have a chance to like travel more and live in these places that I want to live um, where I can find more stories and do my own projects. But you're right, like I think once you get kind of, um, you know, busy with that it's really hard to it can be really hard to like uh work on your own projects and i think like for filmmakers like us like it's like what the things that you're doing now you know it's like finding these side hustles things that like kind of um start something where you can make a living um but where it's not gonna like suck so much of your time or maybe it does in the beginning but then it sets you up where you kind of can have more free time to like make more of your own personal projects um, which I think is really cool. And I'm like seeing more people do this these days and um, and just trying to like understand, wrap my head around that instead of the aspect of like, I need to hustle and, you know, work on bigger and bigger projects that get that where I get paid so that I can, you know, do what I love, you know? So it's very interesting yeah. to hear that. Yeah, I mean, when I first started my commercial career, I was collecting clients like Pokemon cards and just sticking them on my website, like badges, like, oh, here's another one, here's another one, and just kept on going and going. And you, you soon start to realize that, you know, that's not really sustainable if you want to do things you're passionate about because you just end up doing going from commercial job to commercial job. You can't really stop because you don't know if you're going to get another one after. And you kind of get stuck in that little rut. So in the past year and a half, maybe, I've kind of changed my perspective on it. And instead of going from job to job, just kind of shooting commercial jobs and then to another one, I'm looking back to create like really strong relationships with clients, um, not just giving them a video, but you know, offering different services like marketing, you know, help with web design, video marketing, Facebook ads, kind of the problem is us as filmmakers, a lot of the time with commercials, we make a commercial for a client the client says, oh, yeah, that's a nice video. And then they go pay some marketing agency thousands and thousands of dollars to go and market your video. And some marketing dude's going to make loads of promoting your video that, that you put all the hard work into. Whereas I think now, a lot, like you said, a lot of filmmakers are kind of diversifying and biting a chunk out of that marketing agency industry that seemed to have been keeping us all as slaves for a long time. <laughs> um, it's like we've been slaves all along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But obviously a lot of filmmakers, you know, then they're not interested in doing that and they just like going from shoot to shoot. But I feel like for us, who we want to work on passion projects. We're not just commercial guys. Exactly. It's important to, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely think a difference. about how we can like automate and outsource a bit of work. Yeah, and you know, I, I like seeing what you're doing, like creating this Facebook group, like Nomad Filmmakers and things like that because they're you're right there's there's like the the traveling filmmakers that they want to work on commercial projects and make a career out of it 
which is like awesome. And then there's um, another group, which I feel like we were like kind of fall into of like people who are just driven to like tell stories. And it's like they we want to like we want to have a chance to do that, you know, and um, Mm -hmm. it's like trying to figure out how um, how to make that work to where it's sustainable and um yeah i never i never thought of like marketing being like a way of doing it you know and i'm just really curious like you know like what kind of skills do you need to learn to do that you know how do you get started in something like that like because i've I've seen more and more filmmakers doing this stuff and especially now the way things are with the virus it's like people are having to adapt and change um and i know that for myself like i'm that's something i need to do because the things that I was doing in the past, like might not work. Um, so I'm really curious to, you know, hear like what, you know, how that's been working for you and what, what kind of, yeah. Like how, how have you gone about learning those skills and getting started with that? Yeah, I guess it was just kind of, of a changing perspective first, rather than thinking of, okay, I make a video for a client. Then I wait for another email and move to a different client. It's rather, you know, when, once a client emails, you know, you want to, create a long lasting relationship with them. And you want to like talk to them about why they actually want the video. And a lot of the time, for example, if it's like a retreat center in Bali, shall we say, a lot of the time what they want is a return on investment. So they want a video that's going to help them make more money. And that's why you get hired to do commercial jobs. So if you can say to them, well, look, you're going to pay me to do this video. And then what we're going to do after is actually get you all, all your money back by helping you with Facebook ads, with Google ads, creating a landing page, you know, directing traffic, targeted traffic to this video. So instead of you just putting it on your YouTube and just hoping some people see it or something, we can actually work with you to get eyes on this video and make some money. And for them, that's music to their ears because they're a business and they just want to make money. Um, so if you can talk to them in this kind of way and step a step away from the kind of artistic director side and put on your corporate salesy hat, which, you know, it's not the best thing to do. I, I don't really enjoy it that much. But like you said, if we want to tell stories and tell important stories, we need to be savvy when it comes to finance and we need to be able to make an income or else we can't tell the stories and work with the, the NGOs and you know, we can't go and make stories about refugees and things like that that we've done in the past. So it does take right. um, a bit of getting into that world of uh, marketing. And there's places you can learn from from Udemy, from YouTube, all about how marketing agencies work, um, Facebook ads, Google ads. So I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot of information out there you can learn for free. That's cool. Yeah, that's it's kind of exciting, like, um, to see this new wave, you know, and like, yeah um it's cool to hear that you know yeah to hear that absolutely yeah. i mean I've, I've seen you've done like quite a lot of co- commercial gigs yourself as well i saw one about like the the dna um testing kit you shot oh it's in hong kong yeah in hong kong yeah <laughs> yeah that so you, um, so, you, so you do you do quite a lot of commercials as well as the like documentary um, and music videos as well i've seen it's it's weird like i feel like my portfolio it's very um <laughs> i've done so yeah i've done some commercial work but it's i've also managed to work on several documentaries like 
not like my own documentary, but other people's like there's an editor, usually an editor, um, and actually like, you know, been able to sustain myself doing that. But it gets to a point where you kind of it's like you stop getting those those random connections that come up. Yeah. Um, or, you know, and it's like it's just it's very random, you know, and documentaries don't make a lot of money either. But I mm. did most actually i think for at least a year i was doing mostly just i was working on documentaries um like i had this guy who he commented on like we don't exist on vimeo and he said hey like i'd love to connect sometime like send me an email and i remember when i saw it i thought it was so cool but i forgot i totally forgot about his post and then four months later i was look, looking through the comments one day for, and i saw his post again i was like oh my gosh I totally forgot to reach out to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I emailed him. I felt so bad. It's like, hey, like, you know, I don't know if you're going to see this, but, you know, I remember your comment and stuff and I appreciate you watching the film and, like, it'd be cool to connect sometime. And he's just like instantly replies. He's like, yeah, let's call. And so we get on the phone and, you know, kind of like what we're doing. He just asked me about the whole process and what it was like. And, and he started telling me about how he was running a documentary filmmaker, a documentary, um, a production a documentary production company and in uh fort collins colorado and he was like yeah i've been working on this documentary about widows in india for like almost four years and um we're just closing up now it's like that's that's so cool man like it seemed like we had the same heart you know just the same like passion um and you're like yeah well let's you know keep in touch and uh it was like the next day i get an email from him and he's like you know i got a proposal he's like I, you know, would you like to edit the rest of my film? Because I just lost my editor today. I was like, he's like, I'll pay you this. You know, here's like how much I pay you and stuff like that. And I was like, that's sick. Like, I'm totally down. So he like, you know, ended up flying me to Fort Collins. And like, you know, I lived there for like three or four months. Um, yeah. Editing this feature like film. It's like, it was just so random, you know. So I was just kind of catching little waves like that. And it was really fun. But, you know, at some point it just kind of stopped. Um, and then that's at that time, that's when I went to Hong Kong to kind of try to get myself and my feet a little wet again, doing like smaller projects, like paid stuff, like, uh, commercials and things like that. Um, and that's like a whole nother <laughs> experience um, yeah. that I could talk about for hours probably, but, um, I mean, you spent it was a lot. Quite, quite, quite a bit of time in Hong Kong, right? You I've seen some footage of like. I think it was when the riots weren't so bad, like at the beginning, like then I seen some a bit more intense. And then... <laughs> yeah, you know, like um, I had a friend out there and he, uh, that I met before and he's like, I kind of got reconnected with him and he said, hey, like, you know, um, because I told him how I've kind of like in between jobs and stuff. And he said, well, you know, if you want, you can come out here and stay with me for like three months um i you know because he does a lot of video work out there like a lot of gigs and he's like i can connect with some people because i really like your work and stuff and like yeah i'll think about it um and at you know after a few weeks i just was like you know what i'm gonna do it like why not i'll just give it three months and so i booked a one-way ticket (laughs) um and i'm flying out there and it's like literally the day after i booked a ticket that's when the first protest broke out no (laughs) i'm not even kidding man like it was like it was like just the uh, yeah and i was like hmm, well i mean i, I guess mean, i'll just go anyway <laughs> right i was like well i guess this might be another adventure who knows what it'll lead to 
So I just yeah. like showed Petrol up. Petrol bombs and, uh, in 4K, slow motion. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you were there on the plane, like, yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, well, I ended up like meeting this guy who, um, through a friend who actually was a friend of Ansley's. <laughs> really? And, yeah. Yeah. And she said, hey, I know a director and um, maybe you should meet him and stuff. And so I met with him and he was like, hey, I want to, you know, I'm going to go out and get some footage of the protest. You, you know, I'll like, I can hire you to um, come with me and do some shots. So I was just like, yeah, I'll go for it. And uh, I was a little nervous, like, because, you know, I saw what I saw on TV and I saw the kind of things that were happening. And I didn't see him in person yet, though. So I really didn't know what to expect. And um, yeah, it was absolutely nuts. <laughs> Yeah. yeah i knew it was gonna get serious because he he already gave me like the gas mask and everything and i was like i know i was like what am i giving myself into but it's just there's part of me who just wants it's like i'm kind of like attracted to these kind of situations you know like, yeah i was gonna say you went from like <laughs> the machine guns and all the guns in the jungles of thailand and burma then you find yourself on the streets wearing a gas there's, mask like what's next I, where are you heading next Syria? Uh, i don't know i worry about myself you know because i'm like well i don't know why I, it's just i'm strangely attracted to these situations sometimes and uh so i found myself in another thing like that and i just went for it you know and I wasn't too worried about my camera because I bought insurance for it and stuff. So I was like, well, it shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't be too bad. <laughs> and uh, that is, yeah, it's the first time I ever got tear gassed, you know, so it was, oh man, it was, How was nice, that? I guess, what, what, to see. What's the experience <laughs> like, tear gas? It's like, it's like someone just took some like crazy hot pepper and just rubbed it in your eyes and oh. all over your face. Like, I don't know. Like spicy. And then not only that, but it's like, yeah, it's just like your face is just, Dinging, man like it burns so bad um because like i i didn't really get to see like i didn't breathe it in my lungs because i had the mask but it got in my eyes i had these goggles but they just you know you really have to seal your face mm. there's no way you're gonna get by you know you have to like you're still it's still gonna come in and so the, the first thing you start feeling is your eyes are just start burning like as if you just touch some hot pepper and touch your face and it just it just suddenly it's just like goes from zero to a hundred real quick. And you're like, oh, this is bad. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know that I, I never thought, I never really knew what it'd be like, you know, I was like, maybe it just kind of burns and people run away. But like, <laughs> no, I mean, that stuff will stop you in your tracks. Yeah. Like you're just done. It, it, that's why they use it because it, it divides people. Like they, they're all together unified. But what it does is it causes you to think about yourself um, because you're in so much pain that you just, you have to stop um so yeah that was intense um but it's like i wanted to come back for more like it was it kept pulling me back <laughs> you know i was yeah, getting different like, shots get, like an adrenaline rush yeah it, it's like, it's like this weird like... rush you know and just getting on camera it's like i don't know man it's mm. you just want to keep doing it uh and i remember this one time i was filming this guy like speaking on the megaphone who happened to be like an uh, someone in like the legislative council in hong kong I found out later and he's just out there with a t-shirt like no protective gear nothing um and i'm filming him and this brick comes like from behind out of nowhere i didn't even see it and it hits like two guys next to him like it hit one guy in the head and it bounced off and hit another guy's head and they were just instantly oh, on the ground and it was like right in front of me i was like and i didn't have a helmet on which is <laughs> so stupid oh, um so i got really lucky but i caught that on camera and that was just I don't know. I never caught anything like that on camera. That was just surreal, man. 
Yeah, it looked like that was, it was, was getting really out of control, um, you know, to the later stages of last year. But I guess as it all calmed, well, obviously it's all calmed down now with what's happened with the coronavirus. Yeah, you know, I um, it's actually kind of because I originally wanted to give myself three months in Hong Kong and I really liked it because I was meeting a lot of people and starting to hustle, which I at that time I was like, I just wanted to... Um, start doing more smaller projects because i never really you know like i said in the past like i worked on longer documentaries and i worked as an editor for youtube channels so i never did like these smaller gigs so much um so i started doing a lot of them it was really exciting but it was very hard you know hong kong is it i mean i'm definitely not gonna say it was easy like i didn't have much savings and so i was just kind (laughs) of winging it and you know it really helped that my friend let me stay with him for a while but um i did end up getting my own place like a, a hotel and stuff like that and there are times where i was running out of money and i was just like i don't have any jobs like should i just leave you know yeah. but i just kind of gave it another chance like i just gave it a few more days and then something suddenly suddenly something would just pop up um and then i get back on my feet so it was strangely exciting like not just to protest but just like that survival instinct that just kind of kept me going and so i ended up being there for like four months um, but I would say it was getting so bad with the protests, like the street that I was staying on just kept getting shut down. Like the street lights, I mean, the, st- uh, the, um, the stoplights were like, the traffic lights were getting broken and the traffic wasn't able to function. And like everything, businesses were closing down. Like the only place I could eat was McDonald's, which still would stay open, like despite <laughs> protests happening. <laughs> um, America. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then. <laughs> you know, and then my family was getting really concerned, especially my sisters. You know, they were like, you should just get out of there. And I said, yeah, I think it's time because I just finished, wrapped up some <laughs> yeah. corporate gig that paid pretty well. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm just going to like bail to Thailand and just go from there. Um, so I ended up leaving. And uh, yeah, it did get worse. You know, like those university campuses got shut down and um, kind of wrecked. But then like, it's funny how it just kind of climaxed and then everything dropped down with this virus um so yeah. now hong kong is kind of more it's probably one of the better places to be ironically than it was a few months ago um <laughs> yeah it's strange isn't it like i'm sure there's some conspiracy theories out there who say that it's linked but yeah i don't believe yeah that. i heard that too yeah uh, <laughs> yeah have you heard it i've yeah. heard yeah i've heard those um i mean it definitely stopped the protest <laughs> It did. It worked. It worked. It worked. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. But one thing I learned. China's, be, China's chilling right now. They're they are on the man. One like, thing. Yeah. They haven't got any deaths or anything. Yeah, you know, and that's one thing I learned when I was out there. Is like I kind of got a chance to learn more about China and Hong Kong and just those, um, those different like complexities. And one thing I learned um, from you know, I've talked to a lot of protesters. I've talked to people who were against the protest. I've had a lot of people come up to me when they saw me with a journalist gear and they come up to me when I was taking a train back and they're like, hey, like, I just want to ask you, like, what are your thoughts? Like, what's your opinion? And, you know, mm-hmm. at, at that time, I just tell me, you know, like, I'm just here to document. Like, I can only comment on what I've seen, you know, and I've seen violence. I've seen the protesters be violent. I've seen the police be violent. Um, but after I, like, had time to process all that, you know, and hear all those different opinions, it's like, I just... I just don't know if you can really trust everything that China says. <laughs> I mean, that's just my opinion. Yeah. But... 
Like, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, you're good. But, I um, I I spent around four or five months living in China back in oh wow two thousand and thirteen. Yep. And I've never even been to China. Most ridiculous experience in my life. Yeah. Wow. Um, look, China, there's a lot of great Chinese people and it's a nice country in parts, but I think it's the only country that I don't look forward to going to. I had to go shoot something there last year and I was just like, <sighs> you arrive and you arrive at an airport. Normally what you do when you arrive at an airport, you know, you'll check your social media, tell people you've arrived. You'll go on Google Maps, you'll look for your hotel, how to get there. You'll do some Google translation. When you arrive in China, your WhatsApp doesn't work, your Google Maps doesn't work, Facebook doesn't work, all Safari, nothing works. And we're pretty much like cyborgs these days. We rely on our smartphones for so much and you get to China and that's just all completely out of the window. And yeah, I don't know, like the government is so authoritarian, the pollution, it's just a lot of different ingredients which don't make it that much of a welcoming place. And I know there's some beautiful places there, but my experience of it is I'm just a little bit, a little bit on edge in China all the time. Well, wow, man, that's so interesting. I, you know, I always wanted to go to China. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's... Now I, I kind of feel afraid to go there because like I've done some journalism. So like, I don't know if they like, keep track of me and they're like well this guy <laughs> i mean i'd film the protest i mean it's not like i was i wasn't trying to you know i just was filming and stuff and i actually like sent footage to like some um some media and let them use it and stuff so i don't know like i don't know like if they hate that or what and i've heard of other journalists getting blocked from china <laughs> so like i don't know if i'm on some kind of list but it's it's definitely i i had the exact same situation really i was a i was a teacher there oh wow i finished university went to teach you know i didn't really know what i wanted to do, do in my life so I was like i'll go teach english in china you know get out there go on some adventures in asia i arrived and i was teaching kindergarten and it was like an hour a day the rest of the time i was just sat at the back of the room just watching everyone else teach kind of really bored just like thinking of all the amazing other stuff i could be doing I was like, I don't think this is for me, really. I was going to head back to England, but I thought, you know, I might apply for a job somewhere else, like university or, or private tutoring. And I found this job on Reddit. I think it was Reddit. No. It was some website. I don't know if it was something to do with Reddit. Anyway, I followed the links and it turned out to be a job. It was really high paid. Only teaching two children, four hours a day. Um, you know, you get your free accommodation free meals, free driver, all these amazing things. I'm like, okay, this sounds a lot better than kindergarten. I'll apply. <laughs> they wanted someone with like a strong London accent, something I definitely don't have. So had the Skype interview, did my best London Cockney accent, somehow managed to get accepted and said, yeah, we'll send a driver to pick you up tomorrow from Wuhan. So I was living in Wuhan oh, wow. actually at the time, the place where the coronavirus started. Yeah. And that's probably why I have a bad experience in China because I went to Wuhan. <laughs> Um, so I left Wuhan, traveled down to Juja, arrived at this huge industrial compound, armed guards, and I was like, okay, this is a bit weird. What's this? My translator said, oh, this is where the big boss lives. I'm like, Who, who's the big boss? And, oh, the big boss. 
you're working for him. You're teaching his kids how to speak English. I was like, ah, shit, here we go. <laughs> like, what is going on? Had a tour of like this big industrial compound, had like a stadium, had like a zoo with ostriches, had like its own hotel, lake, massive like garage full of all these luxury cars. I was like, what the hell is this? The boss was like on a hunting trip in Mongolia. So I didn't get to meet him, but I met the kids. All good. I was like, well, I've done all right here. I got back to my um, my apartment that I got given for free, sat down, opened up my laptop and just Googled the name of this company, that this industrial compound that the boss owned and wrote English teaching. And the first thing that came up was a, a post on a forum from the teacher who was there previous to me. And in capital letters, it said, warning, do not come and teach here in this city. Oh my This guy gosh. is a huge mobster. He's a murderer. What? He's been arrested several times. He's like organized crime. All these links to different news articles about him like burying people alive, doing like match fixing and football and all this stuff. I was like, oh shit. What the hell have I got myself into here? Dude, that's so surreal. <laughs> so, it was mad. I rang my parents and they were like, how much is he paying you? Like, <laughs> that's the first thing they ask you. It's like, they're like yeah, you stay, you stay, you'll be okay. You've got a lot of debt from university. You, 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 you chill there and, uh, and do some working. Just don't kill anyone. I was like, oh, all right. But as time went on, man, some weird stuff started happening. Like one day, like I had a different driver and I said to like my translator, oh, what happened to um, the other driver? And I'm like, oh, you'll never see him again. I'm like, oh. What does that mean? Like, I, he's, he's been done. Like, what I don't know what earth, man. Because he'd been like late a few times and I'd like, you know, I'd been told, I'd been told why am I late? And I'd said, oh, it's a driver. He came for me late. So I was like, oh shit, have I caused this driver some harm to come to him? And then, you know, I met a few other people in this town that started telling me about how there was like a forced labor camp on the outskirts of the city. And some other dude was telling me all about like the Tiananmen Square massacres of the 80s. And what? It all just started getting a bit strange. Yeah. Yeah, really strange. One of the managers, the boss made the managers meet me and take me out for lunch. The, the boss loved me because obviously I was teaching his kids English, so he wanted to treat me nice. And one of the managers forgot to take me for, for, um, for lunch. And apparently he got locked up in the boss's private jail dungeon, something. I got told by a translator. So I was just like, man, I've got to get out of here. So like it was Christmas Eve, 2013. And I just thought, right, I'm booking a flight, I'm going home. I've had enough for China, this is so weird. But the thing with the journalism is when I got back to England, I wrote it all up. Oh, I, like, yeah. I wanted to be a journalist back then. So I published it on like my own website, Sick Trips, right. Matador Network. And uh, ever since then, I've been like pretty wary that, you know, one day there's going to be a knock on the door. Yeah. There's no, going to be a silence. I don't blame you, man. Like, <laughs> no, I've, yeah, I've heard, because I've heard weird stuff like that happening. Like that, remember that guy I told you who's been a journalist in uh, Kachin State? Like, um, yeah. he had a friend, maybe you saw in the news, but there's like some like Chinese American, like journalist, photographer um, who lived in New York City and he got abducted like in when he was in thailand by the chinese government wow. because he like had done reporting on like really sensitive subjects in china before or topics in china before and i was like wait so mm -hmm. they can just does that mean they can just like 
abduct you from anywhere in the world or like what kind of like i don't know you know like so i heard about that yeah. i was like that's that's nuts you know <laughs> so if you if you have a huawei phone as well maybe they can track yeah what people are saying as well so yeah. that's even even scarier but yeah i was pretty suspicious and last year was the first time i went back to china ever since 2013 for the shoot you know i'd agreed to do the shoot with a client and i was like yeah looking forward to landing in shanghai next week <laughs> just hope there'll be no no hiccups or like what do you mean i went oh no i'm sure everything will be okay don't worry and i was there at the at the immigration with my passport just thinking is something gonna come up and they're gonna be like nope we're taking you to a dark room <laughs> you're gonna get interrogated but luckily um oh you you I got interrogated on the system no oh. no i was i was thinking oh you're like, thinking like that when gotcha. i gave him the passport at that <laughs> moment i was like oh shit yeah like, is this gonna be is this gonna be um that's so surreal luckily, man yeah. i had no idea that you went through that experience like um that's yeah. i mean was that what so, I, so I, when all this has been kicking off like i've i've a quite unusual perspective of China after living in Wuhan. Yeah, and no doubt. Having that experience no doubt. with a mafia dude. So I, I kind of, if there's one country that's going to, that this pandemic is going to come from, it's, it's <laughs> China. You know? <laughs> it's that much of a crazy place. Yeah, um, yeah. I know. But I think we do, we, we are right to be a little bit. A I, th- little I bit think so. And you know, I've seen some people, they like, they like to defend China or like say that, you know, um, we shouldn't be so hard on China or like we're being overly like there's just you know too much like cautious. I don't know but yeah I mean like from your experience and you know like my perspective like what I've seen in Hong Kong I don't know man I, I'm definitely with you like I feel like you know there's a lot of shady stuff with China um, and we shouldn't trust like everything they say and definitely. yeah it's it's weird you know um I mean, if you really want to throw yourself into the firing range or firing line, you'd um, head out to Xinjiang province in China, where the Uyghurs live. You might have heard about them. They're like the ethnic minorities in China who are being like severely um, oppressed. I've heard a little bit about um, that. Yeah. Yeah, they have like re-education camps for them and like they, they don't allow them to build mosques or pray or anything like that. So it's quite it's quite intense out there, but... They don't take lightly to foreign journalists coming in and and filming out there. I think it'd be much much more oh, difficult yeah. than than uh, Myanmar and Thailand. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because I think um, Burma is interesting in a, in the sense that like it used to be really sensitive, but they've kind of opened up and mm-hmm. it's um, yeah, it's not as like like I've never you know I've I've definitely it's because I've been back since the film was out and. Um, and I know that they've seen something about the film because there's some like big media in Burma that like actually got the trailer for the documentary. I don't know why like this happened, but they, they took it and they, they like kind of cut it a little bit where they cut out like the most sensitive stuff, like very selectively. And then they just broadcast it. Like, I don't know how many people saw it, but they broadcast it on TV. Yeah. So on TV. Yeah. And so like, I'm sure that they you know are aware what was their like perspective on it were they saying it's like not true were they arguing against it i'll have to find the video because it's in burmese 
the I don't know what the reporter was saying mm. about it, so I had to like find it and like ask what <laughs> maybe John or something like you like put it on your website like yeah press yeah it was on Burmese TV yeah <laughs> nobody knows what they and they even call it they, like slagging it off yeah they call it like we don't exist and stuff like that but they they cut it right before the gunshot really? happened. <laughs> <laughs> And they just can't be showing gunshots in practice. Yeah, time, they just blasted it on television. So like, yeah, I mean it's out there. Um, but I noticed that the last time I've been back, like definitely, like I was thinking, like you know, like I you had to like go online and get the e visa, and so I was like maybe I'll get blocked. But like I got it. I was like, all right, cool. Mm. So I show up in immigration, and you know I was like nervous because I was like, are they gonna like, am I gonna show up in the computer system? They're gonna like pull me aside or something like that. And it was like, no, they're just yeah. like, oh here you go, like bye. And I was like, huh, okay. And uh, yeah, kind of like similar what you felt like when you went back into China recently. And But the one thing is like, when I've been in Yangon, I feel like I get followed. Like, it's a weird thing. Really? Yeah, I don't I don't know how to explain it, but like, and John was with me and he felt it too. And not only that, but we stayed in a hostel in Yangon. And there's like a group of guys that like, it's mostly like, like these guys, older guys that were just there. And like staying in different beds and it's like what are they doing like are they travelers they don't look like business people or anything and but they would always be looking at us um and i always see one of them in like some room that we were in or if we were anywhere outside i would always see the one guy like not like far away but if we were in the premise like i would see one of them like looking at us and we'll be on his phone or something and i started telling john like dude i think we're getting watched by the government and he said yeah i think so so is that because like john's like well known as a journalist or maybe from like we don't it could yeah i don't really know man like it could be because of john and not me or it could be because of me and i like was flagged in the system and so they just wanted to like see what we were doing i really don't know it could be john it's it's so hard to say and it's just it's yeah i don't i don't know man but it was really yeah. freaky do you have like reservations about going back there now then or are you just um you're not bothered when that happened i was really I actually got really paranoid <laughs> i got pretty scared because i never ex- <laughs> I, I never like experienced something like that before and i thought that when we were taking a taxi back to the airport like i was kind of getting these thoughts like oh they're gonna stop us um but nothing ever happened. So I, I, I feel if I were to go back, I don't, I would, I think I'd feel pretty comfortable now because if, if they were going to do something, they would have done it back then. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, at the time it, it was kind of getting over my head. So I can, I can definitely relate with like what you felt like going back to China and this, that whole experience. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of these countries, you know, they operate on fear and it's like pe- people are scared to, to go and shoot things or do things. Because they feel like they might flash up on a list. But I feel like they don't really have the infrastructure, especially somewhere like Myanmar. Probably don't have all the people, you know, yeah, making a big record and doing that. But that kind of illusion that there is some kind of register and you can be put on it for making a video or documentary, it kind of would, might scare people away. And that's more powerful in itself, you know, scaring people from even doing it in the, in the first place. Yeah, that's definitely. Yeah, you're right. That's very interesting. It may, yeah. Um, I don't know when I'm gonna do something like that again. To be honest, it's yeah. so hard to say. But um, I know I mean, that you were like, "What are your plans going forward?" Like, obviously, 
Corona's impacted all of our plans, but <laughs> were you planning something for these few months now or after? Well, yeah, actually, no, I really was. Um, something was starting to stir up and um, it is kind of halted. Well, I wouldn't say it's halted because I can still do more research and kind of keep writing like a treatment and things like that. But um, I was planning to go back in December uh, to Kearney State and I haven't been back in like two years. Um, and I didn't think that I would like work on like, like the, my next personal project would still kind of be the same story, but it's kind of following that direction because at one point I um, was trying to kind of do what you did. <laughs> like I was trying the whole short story thing and focusing on one character. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's getting to a point where it's so hard to keep it that way. Like it, it's just kind of begging to be a feature length at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so like despite all the things of like saying how it's been like not sustainable it's like i still find myself heading that direction again um and it's about this girl who was born in the same refugee camp and um immigrated to america as a refugee when she was like 12 um and so she's kind of like been able to assimilate like into the american culture to some degree and um actually she's done it really really well she's doing she's done like amazing in school um she's gotten all kinds of scholarships she graduated high school like it wasn't valedictorian but it was like uh i can't remember what you call it but like this person who's like the second um highest like grade student um and she ended up doing this whole speech and stuff um so i actually was in contact with her um through a guy i met this american in Eastern Burma, like in Loika, which is a city, the closest city to where these IDP villages are at. Um, and so I, I met him at a hotel because I heard him talking about the Karini people. And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> this guy knows who they are? And But I was afraid to approach him. Like, he was just eating lunch and talking with, to, to some people there. Um, I don't know who, like, who those people were, but they seen Burmese. And then he left to go to, like, this truck. And I was like, okay. Like, I had to go after this guy. Like, I can't just not talk to him. So I ran out the door and I, the truck was just about to drive away. And I like knocked on the window. I'm like, hey, hey. And I'm like, yeah, I heard you about uh, talking about Karini people. Like, I'm here making a documentary about them. And he's like, oh, what? Like, <laughs> yeah, it was just it's a surreal thing. And uh, he was there, like he was doing some mission work, like from a church um, from the States. So like he was going to these, the similar, same kind of villages and just like giving them um, supplies and like blankets and things like that. Um, so it's just something he does like once a year. And I was like, that's so crazy. This is a crazy coincidence. Um, so we just kind of stayed in contact. And um, yeah, actually, I've never met, I've never seen him since then, but I know he like lives in like, I think North Carolina. But he knew this girl, he knows this girl, um, which is what the story's about. And later on, like down the road, he ended up connecting me with her because he said, hey, like, I know this um, girl who's like, who's a refugee um, and she's really interested in filmmaking and she might have some questions about like how you made like we don't exist. I'm like, yeah, sure, I'd love to talk with her. Um, so we just like connected on um, Facebook and talked to Messenger and stuff. And she like, she just was telling me so much about like her background and her story and then it really drew me in. I was like, wow, like that's something we never really got with this film. Was like, what happens next? What happens to some of these people in the camp? Like, how can they, well, there's like the two biggest things. It's like, do they, you know, all just 
um, resettle to third countries or do they try to rebuild um, basically a nation, right? Like they had an, they had supposed to have this independent state, but it's been taken from them. It's like, how are they, how are you supposed to move forward from this? And it's just, it's really kind of like sad to think about because there is no real answer. Um, but I really liked their story because it kind of was a more positive result of like the whole conflict. And so at some point when I came back, when I moved back to the States after like living in Thailand for almost two years, um, I know it's kind of like I, I came back to like help my mom move all the way to Ohio, which is where I am right now from California. And I know that she lives in like Rochester, New York, which is like a four hour drive. So I got in touch with her again. I said, hey, like I'm going to be pretty close to your city um, in the next few weeks. And I don't know like how open you'd be to this, but I know that like you really want to tell your story and it'd be cool to like um, to meet your family and to meet you and like maybe do an interview and see where it goes. And um at first she's kind of like, yeah, well, I don't, I'm not really sure. I'm like, okay, like, you know, no, no pressure. Like, you know, if you're not for it, that's cool. Um, and then like a week later, she just says like, I want to do it. <laughs> like she just messaged me. She's like, I, I, I really want to, I really want to tell my story. Like, I think like I have a good feeling about this and um, I think it'd be cool to have you come visit for like a week. I'm like, really? Like I can stay with your family. She's like, yeah, that's, yeah, we can do that. And wow. so it just, it just kind of started like unfolding and um so fast forward like i was in cleveland ohio and so i drove there and um met with her family and i just started filming their life like and filming everything that was happening and and it just was very special because right away like the moment she met me and i started pointing a camera at her which is like i mean i felt really um it's gotta be a really really like uncomfortable thing and i felt so like self-conscious about too i was like I don't know what she's going to think or her family's going to think. Like, I'm just this random person showing up. <laughs> but she's, like, telling me her story, like, right away in front of the camera. And she's just talking to me, like, so naturally and opening up so fast. I'm like, this, like, never happens. Like, I don't know. This is crazy. So I just go on with it, you know, and I end up, like, doing an interview with her and stuff. And, um, and I just loved her message about how she really was – just heart set and like she's like okay like i know where i've come from um and i know i've been born in a refugee camp and now i have this opportunity to like do something about it like i'm in america i can go to school like and i can get a job like she's like i'm just heart set on making the most out of these opportunities and you know applying for scholarships and doing everything i can and she's just so motivated um and i've never met anyone kind of like this is definitely like very special um, and she's really motivated to like become a doctor and to um, like do something about like the the uh, um, do something about the uh, what you call it like the hospitals and Myanmar and oh, that's cool. just the healthcare in general and like yeah. you know f- figure out how to do something to like um, help her people in that way um, to get like better care and stuff um and to get more like training experience because a lot of them like they don't they just know like how to administer drugs and stuff but they don't really know much about what it does and different things like that um so yeah um it just kind of evolved this thing where like you know now she really wants to go back um and make it do something or start a project or just kind of like she hasn't been back since she came to america and um and she hasn't like she's never been to her mom's village 
before she's only been in the camp she's never even been to Kareni state even though that's where like she's from and she wants to re- like she's never met her grandma either and her grandma is like getting older so she wants to reconnect with like family that she hasn't like she's never met um but she also wants to go back to like kind of get a first-hand experience of like how the situation is in Kareni state and um to really learn like you know what she can do work towards to like make a difference or what kind of project she can start or something um yeah so i was like well i feel like this can be a bigger project like i can go back with you um and document this process which i think would be huge because originally when i just family for a week and i came back and i kind of was looking over the footage it was almost like, it's almost like the same thing like we don't exist i was like there's definitely something bigger here like i felt like it just wasn't <laughs> i didn't feel peaceful with just making it like a seven minute film like mm-hmm. originally that's what i told her it was going to be and um i was like there's definitely something here and but i so i just kind of sat on it for like two years you know almost two years i think like yeah. all this footage and um i went back there recently like a month ago or two months ago i think it was like right before things went to lockdown um i went back to rochester just to like kind of reconnect and um turn it into a real plan and just kind of figure out okay how can we do this what's it going to look like what's the story going to be like what what is it that you want to accomplish what are your goals um and just kind of hash it out and um figure out like how that fits into the story so it feels like it feels like it could be a feature length you know and um we were talking about how we can possibly go back in december because she's going to have this month-long break from school because she's in like university and stuff um so it's just something we're kind of working on and just kind of seeing where it goes um and um we might even you know do like a kickstarter if it gets that you know if it gets to that point um if things like open up with the virus and because that's kind of what we were originally planning we're like let's do a fundraiser you know like we i've done it before with ansley and it was very successful and then the virus broke out so it's like well <laughs> I don't know, but she's actually been very um, motivated. She's like, well, we can try. And it's like, yeah, you're right. Like, I mean, it doesn't hurt and it's okay if it fails because like at this point, you know, like we don't exist is out. A lot of people have seen it. A lot of Korean community have seen it in America. And um, it's like we have this community to reach, you know, that it's kind of like we have an audience now, you know? Yeah. Um, And I feel like it's something that can be spread pretty well because I feel like, um, I feel like this could be a really important story in terms of um, how it might impact other Korean people in terms of like, because I think a lot of them, like they come to America and they kind of start losing the language. They start losing like um, where they, their roots um, and they feel like they're just split between two worlds. Like they're trying to find their identity. And this is what this girl's doing too. Like she's kind of trying to go back to roots and find her identity. So I think it's like they kind of need to see an example of someone who is doing something about it, you know, and really trying to do something about it. And if, to have that in the film, and it, there there might be, I feel like there's a lot of potential for influence um, for these younger people who are just kind of, um, you know, just stuck in between, like the, the new generation of Korean people in America who um, are just, maybe they feel like they've lost it or maybe they're, they're giving up and um, it's just it's I'm, I'm starting to feel like really passionate about this you know like there could be something there yeah definitely I mean when it's a, a film where you can show somebody's thought progression over time and somebody going through events like an event as big as going back to her homeland 
and it kind of does deserve a bigger story than just what seven minutes could tell. So it seems like you've um, you've definitely stumbled across an important story which can influence people on both sides of the globe, whether it's the Kurani community in in the US or the ones who are in the refugee camps still over yeah in, because over there in Asia. Yeah, I feel like I could give them hope too, even the ones in the camp who watch it mm-hmm. and see like what um, some of the, some of their people are doing in the states and seeing that their life because i know they see a lot on facebook like there's you know a lot of them they have family who are like some are in the camp some are in america and like a lot some i have some friends like who are younger who um in the camp who like have friends in america too and they stay in contact on facebook but this could be like another level to kind of help them feel like they're still unified as well um yeah and thanks man the the other thing about this is like i want it to be a feature length because i feel like that's one thing is um if like we don't exist was a feature length like maybe it could have gotten to more film festivals it could have had like a wider reach Mm -hmm. and so it's something i haven't tried yet and i really want to give it a try you know like i feel like i'm in a place where i have time to focus on this especially now because you know as a filmmaker we're kind of unless we adapt like it's hard to get you, you can't really work unless you do like maybe some remote editing so i was just kind of thinking well maybe this is a chance where i can really f- focus on this and really like start to plan and um you know write a treatment and uh come up with like a strategy for fundraising and things like that and just give it a try definitely i think this is a time where you know it's it's a good time for a lot of restructuring, a lot of rebranding, a lot of planning going forward. And, you know, you could write out the beats of the story and kind of really get it down on paper and envisage what's what's uh, going to be the content of the, the feature. Really? Yeah. And then Listen, just following the main character. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Go I was going to say, Corey, it's been awesome. I've got to get off now. Um, yeah, man. I've, but I've loved I really appreciate you, this call. No, I've, I love I've chat with you it. too hearing all the behind the scenes of what you guys went through to make such an amazing film i think everybody should go watch it um it's really great and looking forward to what you come up with next with the with yeah, the future man. you as you as well like i look forward to seeing like you know what you end up working on next and um hopefully like you get a chance to work on some personal projects soon and yeah, it's been an honor talking with you. Like, I've really been wanting to connect <laughs> with you. Mine, man. We've, like, almost connected, like, in Bangkok, you know, but, like, yeah. I couldn't, like, I had my mom there. But it's, like, it's great to finally, you know, like, just talk face-to-face. And so I really appreciate it. I really appreciate Definitely. your time. Hopefully we can do this again or face-to-face, maybe shooting yeah. together if you need some help with this new feature. If I'm in Thailand, oh, I'm I, sure we can work together. That'd be so cool. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. That's, that'd Definitely. be awesome. Yeah, I've been wanting to shoot with you. I think that'd be so cool. Brilliant, man. Well, listen, it's been awesome talking to you. Thanks for your time. You and, too. Uh, all the best getting through this corona time. Yeah, you as well. Um, Thanks yeah, a lot, just dude. Just keep going, man. Wow. You actually listened all the way to the end. Congratulations. You made it. Thanks for listening to the first Nomad Filmmakers podcast. Hope you enjoyed that. Hope you got some value from that. Corey's a great guy. Be sure to go check out his documentary, Like We Don't Exist. You can find it on Vimeo, YouTube. The usual places us filmmakers like to hang out, you know. Stay tuned for the next podcast and I hope everyone's healthy and well.